If you would please take your Bibles and open to the book of James. Book of James. Chapter 1. The book opens with these words, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. This is the opening. Verse number 2. He begins the message proper, if you wish. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It is believed that these are actually the first words recorded in the New Testament. The the book of James is probably the earliest of all the written books of the New Testament. So these are the first words that the Jewish believers had written to them. Immediately, I'm reminded of the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus begins with the word blessed, which creates certain expectations, his audience only then to sort of be suckered, punched with what follows, are the poor in spirit, are those who mourn, are the meek, and so on. James begins with pure joy, consider it pure joy, my brothers, only to turn around and condition it with whenever you fall or you face trials of many kinds. Several things to keep in mind as we start today. Um, James and his readers had common knowledge. They had common, common understanding about matters. So in verse number three, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then in chapter three, verse one, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And then in 5.11, as you know, we count, on, we count as blessed those who have persevered. So James does not begin his book, and in fact the book as a whole is not, hey guys, I have some secret knowledge, I have discovered something and I want to share it with you. Rather, he reminds them of what they already know. They are God's people. They know this. He says, you know this. And so the purpose of this letter is not so much to inform as to urge and to encourage. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem, and this book reflects that, a very pastoral tone. At least 15 times he refers to his readers as brothers, my brothers or my dear brothers. In that vein, my purpose in this series of meditations is not so much to inform, but to encourage, as James does. But James also wants his readers to go beyond what he has written. That's why he could write something so provocative as, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The reader must consider what is joy, what are trials, and what are the different kinds of trials we may experience. Today, I just want to think briefly about the first question, and that is, what is joy? As it is the statement that opens this letter uh, after the greeting, it must have sounded strange to the first readers as even today, all these centuries later, it still strikes us as strange. What could James mean by joy when he writes something so provocative? By the way, I looked it up in Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And joy is defined as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, 
or good fortune, or the prospect, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Well, if that's how you define joy, then we have a serious problem with what James says when he says, consider pure joy when you face trials. What does James mean by joy? What do his readers understand by joy? Because they had a common understanding. First of all, joy is the noun verb. The verb form is rejoice. And in English, we only have the two words, joy and rejoice. But in Hebrew and Greek, there are a number of words, at least half a dozen in Greek and a dozen in Hebrew. Joy is not and should not be seen as the same as happiness as happiness often depends on our circumstances. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, here in James, is anyone among you in trouble? Let him let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. So it's not the same thing as being happy. What does scripture say? What does it tell us about joy? I want us to consider three areas. First of all, joy in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, rejoicing is something that we see time and time again, and it is frequently uh, spoken of in connection with a feast or a festival. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, these festivals are called times of rejoicing. Um, this is a passage about the high priest blowing on the horn and calling the people together. Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets, over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. While not all of the festivals are necessarily spoken of with the word rejoicing specifically, we do have the designation for the feast that God has established as times of rejoicing. They are to be celebrated. The first festival is that of Passover or unleavened bread. And it is interesting to me, at least, in, in preparing for this, that this is the one feast or festival in which rejoicing is not mentioned specifically, that this is a time of rejoicing. But in fact, it was the beginning of the year for them, because this is when God delivered them out of Egypt and out of slavery. It commemorated the night in which God delivered them miraculously. He sent the angel of death to destroy the firstborn of those in Egypt, but he passed over the houses that had blood sprinkled on the doorpost. We do have one account in Second Chronicles in which the, the Jews had not celebrated Passover for some time. It had fallen out of use, and for whatever reason, they just had failed to do it. And so the king calls them together to say, we're going to do the Passover. Second Chronicles... Uh, Chapter 30, verse 26, Hezekiah led the Israelites in celebrating Passover. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. With great joy they celebrated the Passover. Then there's the, the festival of Pentecost, the weeks of weeks of tabernacles. We find a lot about rejoicing here in Deuteronomy 16. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. 
and rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. I find it interesting. The command is not only for you to celebrate and rejoice, but everybody else, your sons, your daughters, even your servants and the foreigners who may not in fact believe in the God of Israel, but they are to rejoice as well. Then there is the Feast of Tabernacles. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Keep that phrase in mind. Your joy will be complete. So one thing that we should not miss and that these feasts were appointed by God. God appointed them for Israel and they were to be times of joy. Three things to keep in mind in this regard. First of all, there was to be rejoicing with regard to remembering what God had done in the past and there was to be thanksgiving. But secondly, this deliverance from the past was to help them as they look to the future. They were to look to the future with joy, even in the midst of great difficulty. We find this in the prophets, that as they preach to the people, they remind people in the midst of difficult and dark times of what God, in fact, had done in the past. Isaiah 51. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's in the future. That's what God would do. Because in the past, he has delivered his people. And in Isaiah 65, my servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts. But you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from your eyes. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. So they are to rejoice what God has done in the past, what he will do in the future, but there's also to be joy in the present. Psalm 16, you will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. And in Psalm 26, surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. The festivals that God had appointed had the purpose of the purposes of reminding people of what he had done in the past. They were to rejoice, pointing to head, ahead to what he would do for his people, and they were to rejoice. But also being in the present, in his presence, there was to be great joy. 
they were to rejoice. Why is it that God's people are to rejoice? Well, we've just seen what he has done, what he will do, what he is doing right now. But perhaps a question we should ask is, why is it that people in general have joy? In Acts chapter 14, which tells the story of uh, Paul and Barnabas as they are traveling in Asia Minor, they are mistaken for two of the Greek gods, uh, Hermes and Zeus. And Paul tries to explain to them of the true God, the one true God. And in part, this is what he tells them. He, that is the true God, has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. I would submit to you that the only way or the only reason that we can have joy is because God has made us, he has created us to have joy as he has joy. Psalm 104, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Toward the end of Deuteronomy, the Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your ancestors. The King James, instead of delight, has the word rejoice. I think they, I think they complement each other very well here. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. So joy is something that originates in the creator. He is one who rejoices, who delights, who takes pleasure. More on this in a bit. So we've seen rejoicing in the Old Testament. What about joy in the New Testament? If you think about it, the New Testament era is inaugurated by a message of joy. The angel of the Lord speaking to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The gospel is the good news of great joy. In fact, it is the fulfillment of what the prophets had spoken of. As they spoke to people in the midst of great darkness, spiritual darkness, economic, political darkness, they were pointing ahead to the coming of Messiah. And as the New Testament opens, it is a message of great joy. The appearance of the Messiah means the end of exile. The Messiah will bring salvation. He will end exile for not only his people, but for all humanity. The Jews had experienced exile since they had gone into Babylon. Even when they came back, they were taken over by other powers. And at, at the time that Jesus comes in, the Romans are ruling. But he promises deliverance from exile. For us who are not Jews, we are in exile anyway because we've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, separated from the presence of God. But the great news of the gospel, of great joy, is that in fact we are being delivered by what Jesus has done. It is no wonder that the, that the New Testament is filled with joy. Just consider Luke. Uh, in Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep, where a man loses a sheep, he has 99, he goes and he finds the one, and when he comes back, he is filled with great joy. He shares the news and the joy with his neighbors. The woman who lost a coin, one of ten, and she searches high and low, she finds it, and she is filled with joy. And then we have the story of the lost 
sons, if you wish, not just the prodigal son, but his older brother as well. Jesus tells his listeners when speaking of joy, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then in verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It should not surprise us, by the way, that angels rejoice. In Job 38, finally, I think the Lord has had enough and he confronts Job, who has been complaining about his situation, his presumption that somehow he is innocent in all this. The Lord speaks of when he created the world. And he asked Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Luke, I think, of the four Gospels is more taken up with joy than the other three. He ends his Gospel, in fact, uh, with the ascension. When he, that is Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Three things stand out to me when I think of joy in the New Testament. First of all, the New Testament is less explicit about how or in what manner we are to express our joy. In the Old Testament, it's very clear. We have these festivals happen three times a year in which the men are to go up to Jerusalem and rejoice before God. We're not really given that in the New Testament. However, the idea of joyous celebration is something that carries over into the New Testament from the Old And there is a meal, there is eating to indicate this joy, this rejoicing of what God has done. And there is to be a remembering. And so as we have had communion today, we have eaten, we've had something to drink, and we have remembered. And the result of that is that we should rejoice, be filled with joy. Secondly, there is the past, present, future paradigm that we find in the Old Testament. Our present circumstances, in fact, may say to us, no, I am not going to have joy. I am not going to rejoice. We do, in fact, live between the past and the future. We know that God has done amazing things for others, but even in our lives, he's done amazing things, and we trust that he will in the future, but right now it may not seem that that is the case. Well, our joy is to be anchored in the past and in the future, And we are to look to God with rejoicing. Our focus should not be entirely on the present, but on the past, the present, and the future. Listen to what Jesus said early on in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews told them, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And I might say parenthetically, in the present. Because in the present, we may find it very difficult to rejoice or to have joy. The third thing I would observe from the New Testament, but this also goes back to the Old Testament, and that is that this joy is to be shared. This isn't just a one, you know, I'm supposed to have joy and I don't know about the rest of you. This is something we are to share our joy. I read to you from Deuteronomy how that they were to rejoice and not only the individuals addressed, but also their sons, their daughters, the male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and the widow. And by the way, fatherless and widows, one might say, don't have much to rejoice about. But the joy is to be shared. And for those who are in darkness, we who may not at that moment be in darkness can in fact share the joy that we have with them. Paul wrote a great deal about joy. In Romans 12, 12, he said, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Um, And yet I suspect... I'm concerned that people might read what Paul wrote in Romans 12 as being very individual, being very inward, personal, sort of an experience that I'm feeling joy in my heart. Um, but joy is to be shared because three verses later in Romans 12:15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. The word that Paul uses here emphasizes the reality of shared joy. It isn't just, I have joy, I'm rejoicing, I am to share, I am to rejoice with those who rejoice. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, in a different context, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He has a lot to say about joy in the book of Philippians. Philippians 2.17 But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's a prisoner at this point. And in fact, it may be that soon he will be dead. He is not in the best of circumstances. But he calls on the Philippian brothers and sisters to rejoice with him. And he rejoices with them as well. This is one reason, among many, that we get together on Sundays. So that, in fact, we can share our joy. The reality is, on some Sundays, you may not feel particularly joyful, or I may not. But as we gather together, we can share our joy and our rejoicing. In Philippians, Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. When we studied Philippians, we we looked at it. It is one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote it when he was a political prisoner. And so we would expect that the key word in these letters, but particularly in Philippians, would be suffering. He's suffering as a prisoner. Or persecution. He's being persecuted for the gospel. That he's a prisoner. No. The key word in Philippians is joy. It's found 16 times, either in the verb form or in the noun form in this letter. Paul is telling his readers, 
but also indirectly by his example, that they are to rejoice, that joy can be found in every circumstance, and they are to share that joy. So we've looked at joy in the Old Testament, the New Testament, but the third thing, which perhaps should be where we begin, it is joy and the Trinity. Unlike the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we have a Trinitarian picture of joy. And by this I mean that we see joy expressed by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we see that they have brought joy, each one of them, into our lives. Because joy, in fact, is central to the Gospel. From the announcing of the birth of Jesus, good news of great joy, to the ministry of Jesus. It may be a stretch, but I I hear it when Jesus was baptized. The Father said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I take this to be a statement of joy, of reflection, of delight, taking pleasure that the Father had with the Son. We see joy in the Son. Luke uh, Luke 10. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And then in John 15, I have told you this so that your joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Do you remember earlier I said, remember this phrase, your joy be complete? Jesus says, my joy in you will be complete. But joy is also tied to the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, and so on. In Acts 13, we are told that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It is the Father who has made all of this possible. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We are told in John 3 that God so loved the world, he sends his son. In Acts chapter 2, that God raised him from the dead. Paul tells us, to give thanks to the Father, Colossians 1, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people, his holy people, in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Finally, in Romans 8, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If the Spirit has joy and we have the Spirit, then we are to have joy as well. It is a Trinitarian reality. It isn't simply something that God says, okay, you guys over there have joy, or I'm going to make you to have joy. We are made in his image. And therefore, joy is not simply a Christian attribute, something we experience. I think everyone does, because everyone is made in God's image. Okay, so all of this about joy, one might well ask, so what? 
the question, the question may shift from what is joy to what is joy for. And here at the end, let me suggest some, some things for you to think about in the coming week. Fuel for meditation. First of all, we should recognize and remember that joy is part of being made in the image of God. Because we bear God's image, we can have joy and we are to be joyful. But we live in a broken world. And this is easier said than done. Sometimes it is very difficult to have joy or to rejoice. But it is part of our makeup. This is how God made us. Sadness is a reflection of the brokenness of the world. But joy, I think, is a recognition of what God has done in the past, what he is doing right now, even though it may not seem like it, but what he will do in the future in the new creation. In terms of creation, fall, redemption, joy is to be a part of our lives. Secondly, joy is to be seen in the context of past, present, and future. But we live in the present moment between the past and future. And while our joy may be anchored in the past, more so than in the future, but it is anchored in the future, um, the present may seem rather bleak. But this is not the whole story. There is a past, there is a future, and we should remember that. Thirdly, joy must be seen in a Trinitarian context. We should recognize what God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have done for us in the past, are doing for us right now, and what they will do for us in the future. Lastly, joy is to be shared. I think it would be helpful for us as New Testament Christians to think of the Old Testament festivals, which were community activities, not some private interiorized individual experience, but things that people did together. We have seen in the past few Sundays, our meditations, that it is critical for us to remember and to practice that we are not alone, we are not merely individuals, but we belong to the body, we belong to each other. And so as we have seen in the past weeks, we can have faith for each other, There may be a time when one's faith falters, and that's okay because we're part of a body and someone else, in a sense, will pick up the slack and say, I will believe for you. We are to love one another. We can have hope for one another. Again, when one might lose hope, others would say, listen, we are trusting God, that God will do what is right. And as we see today, we can have joy and rejoice for one another. So when James writes here at the beginning, consider it pure joy, my brothers. There it is, my brothers. It's not just individuals, but God's people. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, we should affirm that, yes, this is what we find in God's people in the Old Testament and the New. Yes, we are to have joy because we were made for joy in the image of God. Yes, we are to have joy Because what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done for us, what they will do for us, but what they are doing for us right now. 
And we are to have joy because we are not alone. We are part of a community. We are the people of God, the family of God. And while these sound like very hard words, I don't disagree, that we are to consider pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. We're not to do it alone, but we're to do it as God's people. Let's pray together. Our Father, one could argue that we live in a time of great confusion, which we confuse joy with happiness, or perhaps more sadly with being amused. Have a good laugh. Rather than looking to scripture, we have looked around us, the culture, to somehow give us a sense of joy. And when we do that, what James writes sounds harsh, it sounds horrible. But even if we look to scripture for what joy means, these are difficult, these are hard words. I thank you that you have made us for joy. We're made in your image. That we can remember what you have done in the past and we can anticipate what you are going to do in the future. Though in the present, things may not be so bright. And I thank you that we can have joy, that we are to have joy together. We are to rejoice together. We live in a very individualistic age. These words may sound strange to us. But just as we can believe for one another and hope for one another, we are to love one another. We are also to rejoice together. We are to have joy even in the midst of difficult times. Father, I pray that in some small way, these words will give us fuel for thought, for meditation in the coming days. Here we stand at the beginning of a new week. This is the first day of a new week. Um, Spring will be here by the next time we meet together. Our lives go on. But may we think on these things. And put them into practice. May we rejoice even in the midst of difficult times. And may we rejoice with one another and share our joy. We don't know what the coming week will bring. You do. But there are things uh, planned, projects to be completed, appointments to be kept, uh, jobs to go to, all these things. As you have cared for us in the past, we look ahead to the coming week to trust that you will take care of us. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your great mercy. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.